Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode XXXI, Enter Vespasian. When we last left the civil war of 64 CE, fighting had come to the streets of Rome and Vitellius had been dragged out and unceremoniously executed. From Judea in the east will come Vespasian, and he will establish the Flavian dynasty. But before he gets to that, it's worth learning about Vespasian's past to see what man we're going to be dealing with. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Vespasian comes from the equestrian band of Roman society, so that's not the top tier. He's not from a senatorial background. And that means that his family is still very wealthy. He has a good education. But it's a very unexpected place to find an emperor. A, because we expect them to come from the Julio-Claudian family, and we don't really have any of them left. And B, because if we're going to get them from anywhere else, we would expect them to be senatorial, people who have had consuls in their family or at least high up magistrates. And the family of the Flavians have neither of these. His father is a tax collector, which is considered a very low profession, certainly by someone like Cicero, who's one of the few people we know who writes about work. Tax collecting is dealing with money. It's grubby. And of course, then as now, it's universally hated, although his father was known to be an honest tax collector. They put up statues to him, didn't they? They did, which is sort of an amazing thing that I don't think we'd ever do. Although I suppose we put up statues of politicians and they essentially collect our taxes. But I think it's that the reason he gets the statues is that most people will take a cut and he's not doing that. So he's exceptional. They've got here the inscription said to an honest tax gatherer. Exactly. So there you go. He stands out from the crowd. Yeah, well, so noticeable that you put a statue up about him. And his grandfather fought with Pompey, didn't he? Suetonius thinks that he might have. Yeah. And, of course, that means he would have been on the losing side. But it's surprising how many people who end up being successful or have successful descendants were on the losing side in one or other of the civil wars. It doesn't mean the end of everything, necessarily. So where was he born then? He's born in a place called Riate, which is northeast of Rome in 9 CE. Suetonius says five years before the end of Augustus's reign. So he's actually born during the, the reign of the first emperor, which is amazing. He's alive through all of the Julio-Claudians because he becomes emperor when he's relatively old. And he's born in a place that's actually in the Sabine Hills, which for the Romans is almost a place of mythical significance because the Sabines are considered sort of hardworking and good and moral. So this is good for Vespasian because this reflects well on his character. This is sort of traditional Roman values, even though it's not Rome itself. But it's the place where Rome's second king was supposed to come from and he was the lawmaker and the peacemaker. So this is all good for Vespasian's reputation. Nevertheless, you'd never have guessed he was going to be emperor. Yeah, so he had no design on being emperor at all. So what sort of career was he destined for then? What did he end up going through and what do we know about his early career? Well, it wasn't always that successful. He's, he's trying to go for some local magistracies and he will try to go for a uh, military career. But of course, as we know, military and political are closely intertwined in Rome. 
sometimes he doesn't get the magistracy he wants. He also seems to be his own worst enemy in some ways for the Roman career ladder because apparently his mother really wanted him to try to get into the Senate. His brother, Sabinus, had already got into the Senate and had got a fairly low-down magistracy. And Vespasian didn't seem to be particularly interested in that. And so his mother would say, oh, you're going to end up as your brother's servant, basically. You know, you've got no ambition. But eventually she persuaded him by doing him down in this way. She persuaded him that he should put himself forward for the Senate because you have to be enrolled onto the role of the Senate. And he gets to be in the Senate, which means he's available to be put forward for magistracy. So he got nagged by his mother into going into politics. That's how it seems Family to be, expectations, yes. they never change, do they? <laughs> and, but in his case, it sort of worked in the end. Don't tell his mother, though. <laughs> um, this is something that's stressed in our sources, and I think it's meant to be a positive for Vespasian. He's not expecting the highest office from early on. He's not just working for himself. He's not one of these terribly ambitious, greedy people who's out to get all the power he can gather together. And that, in a way, makes him more outstanding and more appropriate to be an emperor. There is this constant tension in Suetonius and Tacitus in particular that it's the people who might not get to be emperor who would actually make good emperors. But in the case of Vespasian, it's almost like he's the one that gets to be emperor that actually isn't greedy and cruel and nasty. He does have enough success to get close to the balance of power, doesn't he? So he's he interacts a lot with, uh, we've got records of him interacting with Caligula, for example. What point of his career is he at now? Well, he's got a sort of fairly lowly magistracy because he's in charge of keeping Rome clean, which, as you can imagine, is not like being in charge of the treasury or an army. So we're talking about streets, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Making sure there's no refuse. Well, there's going to be refuse. That's a job that would never end. Indeed. It's being a, a local magistrate and official, like working for the council, I suppose, but in an administrative capacity. And Caligula clearly thought that he didn't do this very well because he bullied him and made fun of him by actually taking mud from the street and putting it inside his toga. Um, to prove inside to, Vespasian's toga. Yeah, to prove that he wasn't cleaning the streets properly. Vespasian seems to have laughed this off, really, though. Well, you've got to when Caligula does it to you. <laughs> this is something that we'll see is... It's something that Vespasian does over and over. He doesn't seem to mind being made fun of, even when he becomes emperor and he could... You know, he could get rid of you if you if you make a joke about him. He never seems to do that. He takes it in quite good form. Mm. But he's also starting a military career at this point, isn't he? Yes, he's going to different parts of the empire, like northern Greece in Thrace, and most famously, I suppose, to Britannia, to Britain, where he fights with the Emperor Claudius in the invasion of Britain in 43 and, and after that. So he's there at a really important milestone because, as I think we mentioned when we looked at Claudius, this is going over ocean. This is big for Rome. They're actually breaking out of Europe, as it were. And he obviously pleased Claudius there because he doesn't get a triumph as such because nobody gets a triumph outside of the imperial family by now. But he gets the honours associated with a triumph, the triumphal regalia. So that's nearly as good. And it's as good as you can expect if you're not part of the dynasty. So being this successful and this close to the emperor must have come with its perks, wouldn't it? It certainly would have done. It really makes Vespasian's career and Vespasian at this point is married and he's got two sons and a daughter. The daughter doesn't live very long. 
but his sons are then educated with Claudius's son, Britannicus. So that's how close he is to the imperial family. He's clearly on the inn. It doesn't last, though, because when Agrippina rises to power, when she marries Claudius, she decides that she doesn't like Vespasian and he's out of favor. And this seems to be because Vespasian was fostered by one of Claudius's freedmen, who's called Narcissus, and she made an enemy of Narcissus right? and probably got rid of him. So enemy by association. Yeah, exactly. Nothing beyond that. Uh, nothing that we know of, no. And, and there are factions in the palace always, and he's in the wrong faction at that point. So he just plays it really well. He just goes quiet, retires, waits for an appropriate post to come along so that he can get a military post somewhere and just sort of lies low. He's getting quite on in his career at this point as well, isn't he? Well, I guess that by the time Agrippina dies in 59, it's very easy to work out because Vespasian was born in 9 CE, he's 50. Mm. Yeah, you could be at the top of your career. You could be consul in your 40s, although under the emperors, they mess around with that and you could be a lot earlier anyway. So yes, you might expect him to be further on if he's a very ambitious man, but he isn't. He's the one who bides his time. So where is he at this point then? He gets a province in Africa and he's known to be a very fair person there. So a bit like being a tax collector. This was the kind of job where you could just ream the province if you wanted to. But he doesn't do that. Firm on discipline, treats people fairly, gets a good reputation for this. Suetonius kind of breezed past that era, didn't he? Because he said, yeah, all boring, all very normal. At one point, he got pelted with turnips. Move along. Yes, and he doesn't explain why, which is annoying. (laughs) It is very annoying. I guess anyone in high office is going to be unpopular with somebody. Or maybe Suetonius just didn't know why. But Suetonius clearly takes the attitude that he wants us to think positively of Vespasian. So maybe there is more to that story and it's something potentially negative, but then why bring it up at all? Yeah, yeah, true. It's a weird dead end. So if he doesn't make much money in the province, where does that leave him? It leaves him broke, really, when he comes back from Africa to the extent that he seems to have needed to make money from trade. So he sells mules and people who drive mules. He gets a reputation as the mule driver. That's his nickname, really, the muleteer which refers back to that period. It's not sort of very honourable in Roman aristocratic terms, but it's used by his biographers to show that he he could have made it in the traditional way of just stealing it from the province. But because he didn't do that, he was driven to this. He was driven to low-down trade. His situation seems to improve to a certain extent under Nero after Agrippina's gone. Right, so so he's back in the good graces of Nero. He's back with his career sort of online, except he's not making money. Right. But then he's also not one who ingratiates himself with Nero. He doesn't seem to care about that. And Suetonius tells the story of him just sort of walking out and not really paying much attention during... Nero's uh, performances when he goes off to Greece. Vespasian goes with him to Greece and sees him take part in the the competitions, the poetic and musical competitions. And of course, you're all meant to sit there and look enraptured and cheer, and Vespasian doesn't do that. And Nero is not happy with him and, and basically drives him out. The second account that Suetonius brings up is that if he didn't walk out, he probably fell asleep in them. Yes, exactly. That, that doesn't bode well for... For Nero or Vespasian, really. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty brave of Vespasian, and he does seem to survive it. Given the accounts that Suetonius and Tacitus give of what Nero will do to people who displease him, 
Vespasian's clearly just made of sterner stuff. He doesn't care. He's not going to, he's not going to flatter the emperor. It's not something that he's made for. Or he's really tired. Given that he's raised the ire of Nero, what happens? Because he he wouldn't want to stick around if that happens. Well, Nero actually sends him to take care of what the Romans regard as a bit of trouble in the East. And apparently he does this, this is sending him to Judea, because it'll get him out of the way. And also because he doesn't think Vespasian's got very much power. So he's going to send him off to deal with a revolt in the East. And this means that troops have to go with him. So two legions are actually drafted in to fight there. And this is a dangerous thing to do because if you send a commander off, especially in, we're talking about 66 CE, if you remember back, this is just after a conspiracy against Nero, then you could be asking for trouble because a commander who is popular with his troops and with a big army could cause trouble for you. They could mount a coup. But Nero regards Vespasian as no kind of threat at all because he's from such a lowly background. He hasn't got that kind of support. So it's safe to send him there. This is another example of Nero completely misreading the situation. So he sends Vespasian off to deal with this also because he's a competent military commander. He has shown that in Britain and in other areas of the empire. So he's somebody who can deal with the problems that the Romans are having there. And in that sense, he's right. Vespasian does deal with the problems the Romans are having there. So what are the problems? Why are the Jews revolting? There are religious issues. And these, I guess, quite famously started early on uh, in the creation of the province of Judea. And there had been problems, particularly when the Romans had a statue of Claudius taken into the temple in Jerusalem. You know, this is a monotheistic religion. They're not going to accept a statue of somebody else being put in there. Mm. So it's ongoing, this, this religious issue of monotheism as against polytheism, but also taxes. There has already been trouble in the praetor, the kind of local official, military official from Syria, has been defeated. So he tried to deal with the problem himself. Yeah, a man called Caelius, and he has got into terrible trouble. So somebody else has to be sent to take over. And Vespasian is the man who is sent in to deal with that, and he is a very competent military commander. He deals with this uprising in a very forthright way. And even though there's an ongoing war, which actually Vespasian doesn't stick around to deal with because he gets made emperor, he certainly allows for the pacification process, as the Romans would have thought of it, to begin. Another military leader that comes across to join him in this war is his son Titus, isn't it? Exactly. He brings him in, which is interesting because... Josephus, a Jewish historian who's important at this point, says that one of the reasons Nero sends Vespasian is that he has two sons who can basically be kept hostage. Again, this idea that Nero is paranoid and he's worried that commanders might revolt against him, but he thinks he'll be safe with Vespasian because Vespasian has sons who he could threaten. But I guess there's a second son. There's Domitian, who's left in Rome. So it's safe to let Titus go out there. Titus is already a military figure, and he's asked to bring one of the legions down from Germany to fight in Judea. And Titus will actually be left there when Vespasian comes back. What do we know about Vespasian's time fighting in the East? Well, if we only had Suetonius, we wouldn't have very much because his biographer 
doesn't regard this as something that needs very much detail, perhaps because it's biography and not military history. But we do also have Tacitus, the very end of what we have of his histories, and we have Josephus, a work called The Jewish War, that goes into quite a lot of detail about what Vespasian gets up to there. Josephus is a Jewish warrior who's actually on the side of the Jews in the war that Vespasian's involved in. And he is then somebody who turns to the Roman side, I guess you could say he's a traitor, and becomes thoroughly Romanized to the extent that he gets a Roman name. So he takes the name Flavius Josephus, and the Flavius comes from the Flavian family, from Vespasian's family. Well, wow, so he, t- he takes on the name, so he'd be a, a source for what's going on in this conflict then from both sides. He is, and he talks about himself a bit like Julius Caesar did in the third person. That makes it very, very interesting, but also quite difficult to read, knowing that he's writing this as a Romanized historian. He writes it in Greek, by the way, which is sort of the, you know, the language of the educated, I guess, particularly in the East. And he writes in what seems to be a neutral way, but can't possibly be. Mm. On the other hand, he has firsthand experience. He's there and he talks about Josephus did this, Josephus commanded that. The people begged Josephus to stay. And he talks about the Romans being very cruel at times. Uh, He talks about the Jews being really underprepared at other times. For instance, in the beginning of the revolt, they're so lacking in experience and discipline and armor that even with vastly more numbers than the Romans. He says they've got no chance. Obviously, the Romans came in and they were just disciplined and they they created chaos so that the Jews ended up fighting each other almost, you know, accidentally killing one another. He also talks about how the Jews aren't disheartened by that, that they come back with a greater force and they try again and they just keep trying. So he sort of seems to admire both sides. What sort of things does he tell us about Vespasian in particular then? Well, when Vespasian comes into the province and deals with the revolt. One thing he says is that he doesn't go straight for Jerusalem. He deals with the the sort of smaller revolts first, which seems to be, I guess, a tactic that works in the long run. Another one is, and again, remember, he's been taken under Vespasian's wing by the time he's writing this, but he talks about Vespasian and the Romans as being quite ruthless committing mass slaughter at times. And it is estimated that about a million people died and most of them would not have been Romans. Doing quite cruel things, killing the young people after they've taken a town, not really having any mercy. One point where he does this kind of scientific experiment to prove that you can float in the Dead Sea, he throws Jewish captives in there who can't swim to see if they'll bob up, which fortunately they do. But, you know, he doesn't talk about Vespasian as, I mean, I guess this is a war and maybe the ancients don't expect this kind of mercy, but he talks about him as a a ruthless character. But clearly one that he must have admired. Yeah, he does. And as I say, he seems to admire the Romans Mm. in terms of their capacity for warfare and for being very practical and just kind of cutting to the chase. It's very much a divided subjectivity that we can see with Josephus, where he admires the heart of the Jews who want to fight for their liberation, but he also admires just how efficient the Romans can be. Fast approaching the point now where Nero commits suicide and the Roman Empire is plunged into civil war, with Vespasian being over east fighting the Jews, fighting the war for an emperor who 
is no longer around. It's an interesting situation. Yeah, yeah. So soon he's going to see the opportunity to go back home and become the emperor himself. What is it that pushes him to do this, do you think? Well, he seems to be pushed towards it very slowly and other people seem to see that opportunity before he does. At least that's what we're told by Suetonius very strongly, that Vespasian doesn't see himself as the man who's going to be emperor. And he actually declares allegiance to Otho. So he has been fighting for Nero. Now he sees himself as in Judea and Otho's man. And I guess if Otho had stayed in power, maybe that would have been it, that he wouldn't have actually made a bid for power. But then he hears that Vitellius has come and challenged Otho and actually defeated him. So Otho is no more. And at that point, he seems to have been moved towards some kind of push for empire. There's also a, a prophecy, isn't there? There are a lot of prophecies with yes, Vespasian. Th- there's one specifically that I'm thinking of here that Josephus brings up saying that uh, the leader of the world, or the two leaders of the world maybe, will come from the east. And a lot of people assume that that means that the Jews are going to be victorious, mm. but can also point to Vespasian and Titus being the next emperors. Yeah, I mean, Josephus quite interestingly seems to state that the Jews misread that. They don't see Vespasian as the one who's going to come out of that. That you know, I mean, they could viably read it as something that's talking about their Messiah coming along or mm. success in that war. But you always read these prophecies in light of what happens afterwards. And what happens afterwards is that Vespasian will be the successful emperor, successful out of a year of civil war as well. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes. Please tell your friends about it and leave us a review there. Emperors of Rome has a companion podcast called When in Rome, which looks at place and space in the Roman Empire. And you can find that in iTunes. We've got a Facebook page, which would be great if you came and liked and tell us what you think of the podcast, maybe about this episode of the Flavians in general. And on the Facebook page, we've got some illustrations by Canadian storyboard artist Rich Morris. Some other work of his that you should check out is yet another fantasy gamer comic and the Rome set House of Paulus, which is also available in print. And we've got links to both of those on our Facebook page. You can follow both Rhiannon and myself on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, we continue to focus on Vespasian who is the first emperor in a long while to actually have a serious proper go at ruling Rome. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.